in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. He also, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That's consistent with all the prophets in the Old Testament about the, the way that God will fold up this present universe. That's the language of Hebrews 1. It's the language of the psalmist. The idea is that of a garment becoming so old that it's no more useful. Um, so you fold it up and you put it away and then you render a new garment. This is the way Peter talks. And then he uses the language over in verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Again, he's using the metaphor of fervent heat. What manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation as lifestyle and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the element shall melt with fervent heat. Again, Peter is digging deep down into the psalmist and the Old Testament prophets with this language of conflagration or fire uh, on the last day. And then we read over in uh, verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And again, that is the ultimate hope of the believer in the doctrine of restoration. The doctrine of restoration is really a a key doctrine. So like what God is not going to do is just get rid of everything. He's going to restore it. It's a restoration doctrine. And that's critically important to any kind of hope uh, for human beings and for the people of God at large, he will restore restoration doctrine. And we could argue that uh, on a lot of legitimate uh, uh, ancillary levels. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. The emphasis again here is a right world because right now our world is not right. And that's really a concept you and I are learning in the book of Romans. Romans is really about the righteousness of God. This is what I'm, I'm getting at with you guys. Diosthenes. It's the idea that God is righteous by nature and everything he does is to be viewed from a righteous standpoint, particularly in an unrighteous world. That's our problem as human beings. We're unrighteous. Verse 14, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, this is the second time Peter said it, you are looking, you are looking, you have a mind towards these things. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you are looking for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. That is a, uh, that is a warning for us to make our calling and election sure and make sure that we don't get caught by surprise outside of a right relationship with him. Verse 15, an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. And, and we should do that. Every day we breathe in and out, God is gracious to us, to all of his creatures. Account that the long suffering of the Lord is our salvation. It, it, the end of that long suffering is that we might be saved. That's what he's saying. Even as our beloved Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So now he's going to reference the Apostle Paul, and you'll notice what he's saying. Paul is a man that has been gifted with wisdom. Now this comes into play when we deal with the genre of Scripture. As we're dealing with here in the, um, in the Pilgrim's Progress, we are at the interpreter's house. And what 
pilgrim was told is that interpreter will show him excellent things which will help him make his way to his destiny. And we know that constitutes wisdom as we saw it in Proverbs 8. Now notice what he says in verse, uh, verse 15, verse 16. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be what? Understood. Right. Everything is not easy. Everything in scripture is not meant to be easy. Some things in scriptures are going to be conundrums that you don't fully understand. And in some cases may not understand at all. That's the thing we have to know about wisdom. Wisdom does not always open itself up to everyone at the same time in the same way with the same depth. And so this is the case with Paul's teachings. Even the apostles in the first century admitted that Paul was deep. He was profound. There were things that he said that were beyond their capacity to comprehend. And I want that to be an admonition to us, too, as we wrestle with this particular genre in the the, uh, book of Pilgrim's Progress. Some things hard to be understood, which they that are, what's the term, unlearned and unstable, twist. So you'll notice that Paul says people who are unlearned, these are people who are not disciplined. They're not disciplined educationally to handle complex theories, handle complex sayings, handle conundrums, handle paradoxes, antinomies, metaphors, analogies, things that we're going to talk about now. They're not really disciplined to do this, and they end up becoming uh, driven by ego and, and inclined to think they can handle it. And so he uses the term twisting, twisting. If a thing doesn't open up, don't break it. Does that mean you can't open the top? Right. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, because they do that to their own destruction. We could talk about this on a lot of levels with a lot of different uh, theological concepts as well. I want to close here, open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive in. Got a little work to do tonight, saints, so I hope you're not too tired. Listen to what he goes on to say. They that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they also do with the other scriptures, unto their own what? Destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you also be led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfast. Now, what Paul is doing here, I mean, Peter is saying that there's a way in which you can facilitate your own error, your own departure, your own demise by not honoring the scriptures at the level of recognizing when you don't know when, what you don't know. But then you persist to act like, you know, and then you end up twisting it. And it's like being on a straight and narrow road. And it's telling you, if you keep going straight, you're going to be okay. But you decide to veer off the road. So you dig a hole in the road and carve your way out. And just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should do it. And this is the idea about uh, impetuousness. Uh, hastiness. We'll see that in our next parable. Let me let me open in a word of prayer because we got an hour for um, um, exposition and then we can open up for some conversation if you have enough energy for it. Amen. Amen. All right. We're picking up in our Pilgrim's Progress. I, I don't know. Maybe there's a PowerPoint. If there is, I want to uh, move into uh, 
point number two fairly quickly, but as we get there, so you guys can pull that up and you can see it in your outline as well. The first and primary vision of the interpreter, the first and primary vision of the interpreter. As we are thinking about this first and primary vision, what I do want to state is that we are dealing with, as I have on my board, a gallery of visions, seven frames, if you will, seven frames of allegory. Uh, in the account that that John is rendering to us, seven frames that I think are like put in order purposely. So we're dealing also with the concept of taxonomy or order, things that are um, most important, okay, in terms of hierarchy, one, two, three, four, and so forth. At the beginning of this gallery um, that uh, Pilgrim, whose name is Christian, is going to be Uh, exposed to, you and I know that something opens. What opens? A door. And we talked about that on Tuesday night, right? That God has to open the door of heaven for us to comprehend heavenly things. This is John's gospel, chapter three, verse 27. A man can receive nothing except to be given to him from where? Heaven. And so we acknowledge that from heaven do all the blessings come. That's what John said. That's the humility that you and I need to walk in as well. Uh, From God proceeds all blessings and those blessings are given to us freely, uh, judiciously, and they should redound in praise and thanksgiving. So in the gallery, there are, as I stated, seven frames, seven events, seven, um, seven categories, seven Uh, seven rooms. That's a way in which John uses it because we are in the interpreter's what? House. We're in his house. I'm going to be drilling down into that for a minute here. The number seven is the number for fulfillment, completion, or perfection. Perfection is a nuanced term. It really should mean maturity coming into a state of consummation. So the number seven, meaning we don't want to stop at five. We definitely don't want to stop at six. We want to get to seven because seven brings us into the rest of completion. Okay, that's important. You don't want to be at at five. You don't want to be at six. If there are seven stations to engage in, to prepare you for your journey, you want all seven, right? And and this is why when Christian was pretty uh, set aback by the last two visions, the last two allegories of the man in the cage and then the brother that was absolutely traumatized by the last day, He wanted to go, but the interpreter said, you need to see these before you go. And and we'll deal with that when we get there as well. So all of the visions of scripture are not like, you know, paradiso effects where you're super happy and joyful and and things are wonderful. Some visions are hard sayings and painful to ascertain because they pertain to a lot of serious stuff. Here's what I want to say just to kind of flesh this out. The interpreter's house is a gallery of seven frames or seven sets, seven pictures of allegories. Now, when we talk about metaphor, typology, simile, uh, symbolisms, and we talk about them in their individual uh, essence because they all overlap in an allegory, which is a narrative story. An allegory is a, a narrative parable. It's a narrative story within that allegory are symbolic meanings, typological meanings, patterns, 
uh, ideas that you have to lift up and understand in their individual state and then put them together in a composite for the whole thing to make sense as an allegory, as a story, okay? Um, so that's why it's called the allegory of John Bunyan. That term is a biblical term. You guys do know that, right? It is both a New Testament term and an Old Testament term. You will find allegory in the Proverbs. You will find allegory in the prophets. You will find the prophet saying, and a certain man, and then he begins to tell a story about that person. That is not a real event, but it symbolizes something real. Jesus uses allegory when he goes into the parable of the lost sheep or the prodigal son, or the woman who lost the coin in her house because we're dealing with a drawn out narrative. Does that make sense? If we're dealing with just like a typological pattern, then we can go, uh, behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The typological pattern is the lamb. He's a type. The lamb is not a real lamb. He's a typological lamb. He represents a real person. That person is Christ. But Christ now is occupying the role of a lamb and that he is going to sacrifice his life for our sin. Did that make sense? But there was no narrative. There was no interaction. There was no drama, no climax, no resolve, no conclusion. Narratives are going to largely be your allegorical makeup. Hence, that being the case, our first gallery presentation is not an allegory. It's a composite of typology around a picture that's up on the wall. Now, again, I'm not going to waste a lot of time reminding you. If you guys didn't read with me, then you don't know that the first thing that we see in, um, in the gallery that Mr. Interpreter shows us is a what? A picture where? On the wall. That's why I'm using the term gallery. So when you go to an art gallery, you see beautiful pictures on the wall. You stop. That picture is in a state, state of position. It's not moving. It's not a motion picture. We will talk about that because you and I live in a continuum of galleries in a metaverse that is an allegorical movement of all kinds of ideas. Am I making some sense? I'm going to make the correlation between pilgrims going into interpreter's house and where we are in the present world system, also locking you and I into a gallery of allegories. You can see that already, can you not? All right, so the first thing that Pilgrim gets to enjoy as the um, interpreter stops him at the first house is really a picture on the wall. And, and really, when you're dealing with pictures, and that is what your Bible is about as well, pictures, patterns, types, A picture requires that you pay very close attention to the details in it. And that's where we're going with where we are under our first um, picture. When he took him in the room under point number two, the first and primary vision of the interpreter, the first and primary vision of the interpreter is a composite whole of the command that Christ gave us to go into all the world and do what? preach the gospel. And thus, the instrumental means of the preaching of the gospel is what we have ascertained as the faithful what? The faithful minister. The faithful minister. That is the large sort of takeaway for the first frame. The person that we're viewing in the frame 
that we're about to actually categorize every detail as interpreter gave it to Christian is called the faithful minister. Okay, that would operate in contradistinction to the unfaithful minister. We're going to deal with that as we itemize the qualities that constitutes a faithful minister. We're going to also do what we began to do on Wednesday night, which is what we call the antithesis. What is the opposite of of a faithful minister? We're going to do that because in uh, in study, you want to be able to have a position of refutation around qualities that are accepted or are not accepted. You have to be able to know both sides. Why would a faithful minister be of these characteristics? Because an unfaithful minister would not. And an unfaithful minister, therefore, would be of opposite characteristic traits. And we would want to know those too. The, the thing that I want to press into our thinking right now is how important it is for John and for us to hurry up and own, own psychologically, own emotionally, own propositionally, the importance of the faithful minister, the importance of him. There's no one in this room who has come into a saving knowledge of God apart from the important work of a faithful minister. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. We, we, we kind of dwelt on that to some extent on Wednesday. And again, I'm not drilling down in it, into it too far because I do want to get into the itemization of uh, point number three. But it must be stated. Can you pull up first Corinthians chapter four, verse one? And we're going to go there to two as well. In the generation in which you and I live, we are very prone to be the branch boasting against the tree. We are very prone to being the twig boasting against the branch. We're very prone to be the leaf boasting against the twig that's connected to the branch that's connected to the tree. This might come home to you in a minute. We are inclined to be as idiotic in our irrational and unthankfulness as Paul talked about in Romans 1 as to not know that you and I live and move and have our being in God. We, we can be idiotic enough to think that we don't come from a series of inseparable correlations with other instrumental agencies that brought us into existence. Am I making some sense? Right. But you can talk like you just went poof and came into existence. You can act like your mama don't matter. Your daddy don't matter. Nobody around you matter because it's just you and you. And when you do that, you are being radically irreverent and you are being radically unscientific. So you, you know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm always correlating both the political situation and the pious situation, because what we do know is true science has its origins in affirmation in a theological substratum. I know that for a fact, and you should, too. So we don't beat up on science as if science doesn't play a role. God is a scientist. Would you agree? Of course he is. He's the epitome of scientists. And you and I are scientists as well. Our whole lives are about exploration. Discovery, analysis, deconstruction, right? Building things, tearing them down, seeing how they work. Even to, again, the phenomenal levels of sub, uh, subatomic particles and quantum theories and, and dimensions of unseen realms that we didn't even think about 150 years ago. We're there, and the Bible has already talked about these kind of things. So I gave you in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The unseen things are known by the things that are made. 
Okay, the things you can see help you drill down into the mystery of the things you can't see, which is what we're about to do in our study tonight. So we'll have a bit of fun. Listen to this. Let a man so account of us. That's the term uh, for a, a, um, a mathematician or an accountant who, who takes a ledger and weighs out all of the uh, facts about who you are. Let, so, let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ. You guys see that? And stewards of the what? All right. So now we're talking about where we are in our account, are we? We're right now in our account because what is the uh, what is the whole thing about what the faithful minister and the interpreter is engaged in are mysteries. We're dealing with mysteries, are we not? The gospel is a right. Salvation is a the new birth is a that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you need to know that a whole lot about our world is a God is a. You're a, a man marrying a woman is a, and a woman saying yes is a double mystery. Okay, so it's like, you know, we're, we're just full of mysteries here. And stewards of the mysteries of God, look at verse two. This is where we will finally drop. Moreover, it is required, demanded, in stewards that a man be found what? Right, and so we're getting ready to deal with the, sin- the sincerity of what it means to be a faithful minister or and what it means to be an unfaithful one as we deal with um, parallels and contrasts here. So under point number two, we have uh, the interpreter commands his servant to do what? What did we learn that was? Light the candle. Light the candle. Because Christian is about to take a journey in dark sayings. And dark sayings cannot be comprehended by natural light. The dark sayings of scripture have to be illuminated by a light consistent with the nature of scripture. If scripture is the depository of divine truth from God, God has to cut the lights on his dark sayings for us to comprehend them. Can I keep moving? Because I'm wondering whether y'all keeping up with me. You cannot open your Bible and at length understand it with the natural mind. So the servant had to cut the lights on so that we can see our way through the chambers of mystery, right? So we, and we talked about that at length. I mean, I went through several things at length about that. I'm getting ready to drill down into that a bit more here in a moment. So the real setting of these rooms in relationship to mystery The real setting of these rooms, I want to persuade you now to make a a concrete application of what we're dealing with. Are you ready? Is the heart. The real setting of the rooms is the heart. So please capture that. This is not a story about you and I moving in a physically kinetic, uh, as it were, trajectory in some space, some geographical space. What the interpreter is showing Christian is the heart of a man who has comprehended the mysteries of the gospel. The nature of the kingdom of God is that it is spiritual and not carnal. Raise your hand if you're keeping up with me because I'm going to cut the heater off if you sleep on me. Now, I want you to get this. The target of divine revelation at the level of mystery being unfolded is your heart and mind. 
The target of divine revelation at the level of mysteries being unfolded is the heart. And when I say the heart, I'm not just talking about that, that, that cardio muscle in your body. I'm talking about your inner man. Okay, your inner man. But I'm getting ready to inundate you with some Bible verses so we can concretize this proposition before we go. And if you don't mind. Right. It's important for you to know that the scriptures are explicit, that it is out of the heart that all the issues of life proceed. Okay, it's important for you to you and I to know that it's going to be laid out for us in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs lays this this argument out uh, efficiently for us in Proverbs chapter four. It is out of the heart. Verse 23 of Proverbs chapter four are all the issues of life and death. You know, that's the case. Ultimately, it's a heart matter, is it not? Right. And so keep your what? Guard your what? Protect your garrison, your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. That makes sense. All right. So let's let's work through that argument because I want to build it out um, for you to capture this. Luke seventeen twenty one says the kingdom of God. And this is what we're dealing with. The mysteries of the kingdom does not come with observation. The kingdom of God is not ascertained by empirical observation of the merely observable world. Like the reality of God does not come by physical observation with the optic lens of your eye. You can't see God. Does that make sense? Right. So God has to be understood He has to be realized by an understanding. There has to be other mechanisms that bring you and I into an awareness of God. You you agree with that? Also, it has to be other mechanisms that bring us into an awareness of God's Godhead or God's system, his empire, his operations. This is what Romans 1, 18 is saying. Again, we'll get back there on Sunday. When you hear the term Godhead, which is used very sparsely in the scriptures, think about God's um, Senate, God's uh, command post, God's um, arsenal of intelligent beings that serve with him in the creation and maintenance of the universe. Did that make some sense? Think about the Godhead in terms of the triune, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and the holy angels. They are the Godhead at the level of operation. Uh, Theotes is a Greek term that means to be operating as a system over governance of things that are under it. So the idea that the Godhead is in play is how that God created a tier of creatures. He created the angels, good and bad. He created human beings. Good and bad, because these are the categories, good angels, bad angels, right? And between these two categories, the world is functioning and God is operating as a sovereign Lord, is he not? I I shouldn't have to work this hard with you. And he's not operating as a sovereign Lord, Lord without a host of servants that participate in the rule and reign of the Godhead. Okay, I'll leave that alone because I see human beings do that. We do that with companies. When companies are large, they have a a branch of governance, a body of rulers, leaders that govern that company. Same thing with our country. Okay, our country has 525 folks that run up to Washington and pretend they want to do something for us. Right. 
Right. And so I'm just saying you got this here is a body of legislative, executive, judicial persons working in the name of the United States. So it is with God. It's important for you and I to know that he says, neither low, uh, neither shall they say low here or low there. For behold, the kingdom of God is where? Right. So what all Christ said there was a man or woman cannot really substantiate the kingdom of God unless they have a divine epiphany and can comprehend that there are things going on that do not come with physical observation. And we talked about that in John chapter three, when Jesus said to Nicodemus and Nicodemus was a ruler and he couldn't see the kingdom. And Jesus said, except you be what? Born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus struggled because he knew Jesus was right. Now, Nicodemus was part of a physical court of rulers over a physical authorial space, but it had no substantial correlation with the divine kingdom that ruled over it. And he knew he was outside. Am I making some sense? All right. So I do want to uh, continue going on. I just want to persuade you of heart matters around what you and I are going to be dealing with across these seven visions All right. Here's another text I want you to comprehend with me. Ephesians chapter three, verse 16 through 18. Ephesians six, uh, three, verse 16 through 18. Listen to the words and just let them settle in. Here's what Paul said. Paul says, I'm praying to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ that he would grant you. That means gift you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. With might by his spirit. Where? Right. So now he's talking about an operation of the spirit to equip you to experience what the next verse is going to talk about. So now the third Paul has prayed that the third person shows up in a way in your life that's radically invasive. How radically invasive? Your inner man. Now, notice what he says in verse uh, verse 17, in order that Christ, second person, may dwell in your may dwell where? That's the ground of contact. That's the point of reality. That's the rim of revelation. That's the point of relationship. That is the nexus of reality for us. So when you go away today, here's what I want you to go away with. If you haven't been persuaded of this reality, these are all heart matters. These are matters of the heart. Relationships are always at the heart level. And the heart is the inner man. This has to do with your mind. This has to do with your understanding. This has to do with your volition. This has to do with your affections. This, is, this has to do with how you operate in terms of comprehension, understanding, desire, and therefore movement. It's a heart matter. It's important to know. Now notice what Paul says. I'm praying that Christ might dwell in your hearts by what? Right. He can't dwell any other way. You're not going to dwell physically. So he has to dwell by faith. And just to help some of you who are listening, he's praying that the Holy Spirit sets Christ on your heart. Because you can't and you won't adequately do it. Did that make some sense? So actually what you see Paul doing. Paul is doing what the faithful minister, if you know the categories are doing. If you're keeping up with me, he's a faithful minister, is he not? Is he a faithful minister? Right. It's important to know that he understands the point of contact that constitutes what is called a saving knowledge of God. A real knowledge of God is a is a heart matter. Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in what? 
Right there, it's a beautiful concept because this is about relationship. Love is always about relationship, right? That you be rooted, being rooted and grounded in love now may have a revelatory experience. Look at the next verse. Look at what it says. That you may be able to what? There it is. There it is. There it is. The eyes opened. The heart opened. The understanding opened. So you need the Holy Spirit to strengthen you in your inner man so that Christ can stay seated on the essence of your mind and your understanding and your volition and your will in order that you might, by the presence of Christ, comprehend the dimensions of the kingdom. There it is. Notice what he says. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height. What is that? That's a metaphor of a what? A building. The building is the kingdom. It is the house of God. It's God's dwelling place. It's his rule over the universe. Now notice what he says in verse 18. Uh, verse uh, 19. To know the love of what? Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Meditate on that. Got to keep going. Powerful, isn't it? Powerful. So now another verse I want you to go to is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where we went Wednesday, because I want this to anchor down again, because remember what interpreter told the servant to do? Light a candle. Light a candle. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, talking about heart issues again, right? For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, there it is. Now who's doing the commanding here? Who was doing the commanding in the parable? The interpreter. The interpreter was commanding the servant. If God's doing the interpreting here and the interpreter is doing the, uh, if God's doing the commanding here and the interpreter is doing the commanding there, is there a subtle correlation between the interpreter and God? Is God the interpreter? Yes. Helping you. Helping you. For God who commands the light to shine out of darkness hath shine Where? That's the realm of revelation. That's the, that's the dominion of comprehension. That's the sphere and realm of understanding. That is the scope and ground of relationship. It's a relationship. See what I'm getting at? For God commands the light to shine in our hearts to give us, here it is, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the what? In the person, in the person, in the person. That term can be translated person. Remember, face is a metaphor for knowing. Face is a metaphor for knowing. If God turns his back on you and you don't see his face, it means you don't know him. Y'all keeping up with me? I'm not going to spend a long time here because the clock is flying and we're not even at our deconstruction yet. But it's important. Is this not important? Right. It's important for you and I to know that as we enjoy, as we actually enjoyed the whole of the excursion for Christian a big part of his excursion is what's going on in his heart. But certainly in the interpreter's house, this is about a heart exercise of revelation around the mysteries of the kingdom of God in order to prepare us for our journey. All right. I, I want to uh, probably employ one more verse. Matthew 13, verse 18 and 19. So I think, we're, I think we're almost there. We can go to work, you know, because now I have bothered you with one term, and it's the heart. Because fools neglect their heart. 
And so they perish. Because these are all heart issues. Listen carefully. Hear ye therefore the parable of the what? So if, if Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, God is the one that is commanding the light to be cut on. If the interpreter tells the servant to cut the light on and the interpreter is himself God, i.e. Christ, because Christ is the revelator. Then what we have here in the parable of the sower and the seed is a metaphor of what Christ does in the hearts of men by the word of God. Is that true? Listen very carefully to it. I'm going to read, read only one more verse. Verse 19. Matthew 13, 19. When anyone what? Well, that's where faith is going to come. Or rebellion. Right, because some people hear and rebel against what they hear. Would you agree with that? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, see the subject is what? The kingdom. Here it is, and understand it not. There it is. So now something's going on by which the privilege of revelatory insight concerning mysteries is available to that person, but they don't get it. Okay, does that make some sense? And understand it not. Then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his. I just want you to understand that whenever you and I are hearing things, we are hearing them in our heart. Okay, that's where it goes. This is why good and bad news affects you emotionally. That makes sense. I don't like what PJ is saying. I'm mad. Okay. You just got hit in your heart. It's true. So I'm just saying what I want you to capture now. And then I want you to do this for me because I'll talk about it on Wednesday. I want you to read the whole, the whole of Ezekiel chapter eight. I've taught our church this years ago. You guys are a bunch of newbies and you need to get this because what God does with Ezekiel is translate him from Babylon to Jerusalem to show him the wickedness of the hearts of the rulers under the metaphor of opening a door and entering into a hole in the wall, which leads to the dark chambers upon the walls are the same kind of gallery metaphor that we're using with interpreter's house. Did you guys get that? Yeah, that's, you haven't read your Bible. Ezekiel 8 verse 6. Ezekiel 8, 6. I'm going to walk you through just about five verses. I want you to read the whole thing between now and next week. It'll change your life. Ezekiel 8, verse 6. And he said further unto me, son of man, see what they do. Even the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, that I should go far from my what? So the sanctuary is a point of contact. It always is. Because the sanctuary is the external manifestation of the kingdom. All of the artifacts, all of the articles, all of the material in the tabernacle are pictures and metaphors and paradigms and similes and artifacts of the nature of the kingdom of God. When you go into the temple, you take your journey through the gallery of redemption, do you not? All right, so here it is. Um, that I should go far from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again and I will show you greater. All right. So does God see the heart? Look at the next verse. I'll just walk through a few. And he brought me to the what? And when I look, behold, a what? So, so Ezekiel is engaging in what is called a vision. Okay? Just like we're doing in the Pilgrim's Progress. He came to a door 
He opens the door. We see a hole in the wall. And that becomes for us an analogy or a typological pattern of the wicked engaging in secret hypocritical behavior. Now, notice what he goes on to say. Then said he unto me, son of man, dig now in the wall. (laughs) Did you? Didn't y'all see uh, crazy Jewish brothers in New York digging holes under the, under the synagogue? Did anybody see that? Raise your hand if you saw it. Them crazy Jews digging a hole in the, in the synagogue, right? And, and popping up on the side of the road, on the side of the street, in their whole, you know, gear on. I, I'm like, you guys are something else. Then said he unto me, son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a what? Doors are always metaphors for access into access into, access into. This is why Pilgrim is dealing with a gate and two doors, okay? And then he's gonna finally go through the last door into glory. So doors are always points of access and and means a prohibiting, by the way. A shut door prohibits. An open door is approval. Notice what he says in verse nine. And he said unto me, go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. Here it is. So I went in and I saw and I behold and behold every form of creeping thing. Do you see that? What is he describing? The animals of the world. <laughs> Lisa started scratching like he was talking about leeches. And, and, no, every form of creeping thing, animals. Notice what it says. Every form of creeping things, an abominable beast and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the what? Do you see how Bunyan extracted a bit of the Ezekiel text to lay out his argument about secret things, mysterious things? Can you see that? Can you also see this as a pointer passage for Romans 1, the subversion of rebellion on the part of humanity for not glorifying God, but descending or collapsing into animal worship? We're going to deal with that on on Sunday. You guys see it, right? These are all biblical things. So Paul sees this. John Bunyan sees this, and now you and I do. This here is simply describing the heart of man. Got it? Verse 10, uh, verse 11. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancient house of Israel. Now, who knows what those 70 men of the ancient house of Israel are? The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were officially 70 elders that governed Israel. They were lawyers. They were scribes. They were the Pharisees. They may have been part of the aristocratic authority among the priests as well. They were the leadership in Israel. These are the folks who hunted Christ down and hunted John down and hunted Paul down. Paul was among these guys. You guys see that? In other words, the main leadership in the church is engaging in these dark, abominable, Illuminati type uh, religious practices. You guys see that? It shouldn't surprise you. There's nothing new under the sun. This is why your Bible is right and they don't want you to believe it. Let me let me let's keep going. I'm going to leave this alone. Other than other than only other thing I want you to see is he calls out a few people by name. Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man, his censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense did what? What were they doing? Worshiping. Incense is prayer. Read the whole thing for me. okay? go back and read it. All right. Now you and I are getting ready to go to work. 
Let me uh, affirm the rest of point number two so we can get into point number three and try not to be uh, long here. I don't think we will, but it's important to know. The first and primary vision under sub point A, the interpreter commands the servants to cut the lights on. We need light. We need light. Sub point B, what kind of sayings are parables? What are they, ladies and gentlemen? They are dark sayings. Parables are dark sayings. They are inconspicuous, dark sayings. They are riddles. Remember one of the chief judges in the judges was a Riddler. What was his name? Samson. Samson engaged in riddles because Samson was a great picture of Jesus. Without a parable, he did not speak because a riddle set you up to either humble you or reward you. Remember, he gave them riddles and they couldn't solve the riddles. And then they wanted to cheat and, and take his wife and dog her. And that gave Samson an opportunity to destroy them. Right. But remember what Jesus says. These things are done in parables that those who do not understand may continue not understanding. And for those who are privileged to comprehend them, to know them in order that you and I might advance in a knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom. So we can see the world through the grid of a biblical lens and understand it the way God means for us to understand it. OK. All right. So um, we, we've got that. What kind of what kind of saints are these parables? They are dark saints. So point C, it revealed to Christian what? What did it reveal to Christian once the light was cut on and they went into the first place? It revealed to Christian what? The faithful minister. How many of you guys read that portion? How many of you guys read that portion? How many of you guys came to the conclusion I just said? Because the first picture is obvious. The faithful minister. Y'all got that? That's what I was trying to explain. I want you to get that. So when the light is cut on. The uh, primacy of the gallery of the seven frames starts with the faithful minister. What Christian is being told as the interpreter explicitly told him at the end of his discourse, he is going to be the one that helps you to make it where you are going. See to it that you pay attention to him because there are many others who will take you to the way of death but not the faithful minister. Does that make some sense? Right. Okay. So it's very important for us to just understand that that was what was being told Christian. And by the way, Christian knew that because he had just escaped the era of worldly wise men. He already knew you don't pay attention to false prophets, but he knew like you and I should know that you and I can wake up any given day and fall prey to them. So one more verse, Proverbs, uh, Isaiah chapter nine, verse 15. I want you to catch this. And then I want to just go into our exercise for now because it's eight o'clock. Here's Proverbs, here's Isaiah nine fifteen. Here's another verse you want to learn by heart and understand the, um, understand the analogy, understand the lesson inherent in this sort of uh, uh, paradox. The ancient and the honorable. These are the rulers in Israel, ancient and honorable. This would be, you know, the heads of state. That's how we use the term. This is the way, this is why I quoted to you in Romans chapter one, verse 18, where Paul used the term, the God, what? Godhead, Godhead. These are the people that rule with God. These are heads of state. Like again, our Senate and and Congress are heads of state. They are supposed to represent the people, are they not? Right, so the ancient and the honorable, he's the what? 
the ancient and honorable is the head, and the prophet that teaches lies, he is the what? That's right. Never forget it. The prophet that teaches lies is the tail. He's the one that's always inverting, inverting reality. His job is to invert reality. His job is to deconstruct what God builds up. His job is to deflect. His job is to distract. His job is to deny. His job is to avoid. His job is to deceive and his job is to destroy. Right? Because lies are distortions of reality that constitute idolatry and lead men to perish. Right? So this is a battle between truth and lies, is it not? All right, so time to go to work. Time to go to work. Thank you for the exercise with me. I mean, I got many verses I could have taken you to, but I want to now um, go on down onto point number three in our outline, the characteristics of a faithful minister. Um, and we'll pull them up now. If you guys remember how that Christian observes the painting like you are when you're in a gallery and you're just transfixed on this compelling specimen of an art expression from some content creator, right? And you're looking and you're being drawn in. And and if art is what it should be, it should call you into detail. It should call you into nuance. It should call you into dimensions and depths. It should call you into categories. It should call you into uh, obtuse angles. It should call you into an overarching message that can take you deeper and deeper and deeper inside that picture. Does that make some sense? Right. Um, And even right now, I want to just repeat again, and we're not even looking at motion pictures now. This is a still shot. Okay, it's important for you to get that. It's a still shot. The rest of them will be motion pictures. But the still shot is first. Because the still shot is the prima facie importance that Pilgrim has to have. He has to understand that primal to his ability to comprehend the rest of the motion pictures is his commitment to the faithful ministry of the word of God that's going to keep him from being deceived. Did that make sense? All right. Very important. All right. So the characteristics of the faithful minister, we had noted with Pilgrim that the first thing that was observed was his face. And that would make sense to me if I'm going to really want to know this person, this this um, this species of human that's in front of it will be an animal too. I love looking at horses. I love to watch um, artists draw horses and many other animals zoomorphically, right? But anthropologically, whenever we are looking at the picture of a human being, a headshot is absolutely critical for us to get some real idea of who they are. Would you agree? Can you imagine? I'm just going to do this for time's sake because I got you. You can't go till I'm done. So you're here now. Can you imagine every uh, every body shot, every shot of a body with a head, with a torso and legs, but every head was blocked out, what that would do to you in your mind. You keeping up with me? Can you see what that would do to you in your mind if you were forbidden to actually see their face? It would be a very strong intuition that you are not allowed to know them. You are not allowed to know them. You can know a lot about them. You don't get to know them. And fascinatingly, Jess, I should go on, but I really want you to 
uh, join me in the interpreter's house. You can, you can, you can have two males or two females that in terms of the anatomy of their body can be so similar that it would be hard to distinguish. God makes human beings like that on the planet. I'm here to tell you. You can take two, two human beings in a headshot down. You can find bodies that are so similar that it will be hard. Now, of course, a person that really understands the uniqueness of the physical body could see details that would be, um, that would show variance. But in general, you can put two bodies together and you can have a hard time distinguishing one from the other. Headshots are the way you know the difference between two people. No two people are exactly alike. No two people. Am I making some sense? As beautiful as they may be, as unique as they may be, as specific and exquisite as they may be, there are going to be subtle things that are radically different, even with Siamese twins. And you're going to go, oh, that's the difference. And you're going to know it from here on out. That way you can know them for who they are and not misrepresent them for the other person. God made you that way. He made you to be known for who you are. Does that make sense? Right. We are to know each other. And that's what's going on here. He was of what kind of face? Do you guys remember? Sober. 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 That's the first characteristic connoting the faithful minister. Now, his face represents his attitude. It represents his disposition. It represents his reputation. It represents his presence and availability to you. I want you to get that. His face represents his presence, his uh, attitude, his uh, reputation among you. This is why we just read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God has caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to be revealed to us in the face of Jesus. So men and women who know Jesus know God because Jesus is the face, meaning he's the he is the essential mediator between us and the invisible God. It doesn't mean that we know what Jesus looks like physically. That's not the point. Did that make some sense? Right. Everybody want to paint a picture of Jesus. That's, how, that's not how you know Jesus. The face signifies the person. This is what we call a synecdote in, in, in Latin language. A synecdote is when the part represents the whole. So if I know you, I'm going to know who you are by your face. Does that make some sense? And the face is going to be the point of contact for, uh, for intimate relationships at the knowledge of communicate at the level of communication. We're going to be talking to each other, dialoguing. We're going to be engaging at the multiple levels of communication that would constitute proposition. It would constitute uh, emotional innuendos. It would constitute energy uh, because energy plays a role in how we interact. You guys do know that, right? All of us have energy levels. And when you have a normative energy level and you and I are talking and engaging, if you're not going through something of a real difficult abnormality, I can tell that you're all right by your energy because you have an energy level frequency that constitutes your your equilibrium. It's true. Like I do. I have a high energy level. Okay, high enough to be able to to impact people in engagement. Other people are like, that's not a bad thing. It's it's just what it is. Am I making sense? Some people are much more mellow, laid back. I like those kind of people. 
I like mellow, laid-back folks. I'm cool with the high-energy cats, too, because I'm going to put them to work, because you can't have two high-energy people in the same space too long. But I'm putting you to work, because God makes some of us that way, like he does the animals. There are high intense. You have if you if you're a cat owner or a dog owner, you know what I'm talking about. High energy levels are a, a, it's a thing. It is a code. It's an insignia. And God means a hummingbird is a high energy creature. I love hummingbirds. All right, just get on back. Get on back. Just get on back. I was going into the house the other day. And as I'm walking up the stairs, I don't know what I'm doing. I think I came back from a walk. I did. I came back from a walk and uh a hummingbird followed me up my stairs and he hung out until I found my keys and opened the door. He wasn't far away. Little bitty thing. So much energy proceeding from him. Really? If you've never heard them, you wouldn't think they would have that level of energy. Because of the speed of the flapping of their wings, their heart rate, just energy bursting from them. This is why they don't live long. People of high energy just don't live that long. But they live well and they make an impact. Does that make some sense? In contradistinction to our brother, the turtle. He lives to be 200 years old. But, you know, we ain't partying. We're just not partying. I'm just letting you know we're not partying. We can sleep together. We can have a we can have talks, long, you know, philosophical talks. Ain't doing nothing else. All right. He was of a sober face. Titus chapter one, verse seven through nine. The reason I'm giving you these verses now is because these are verses that require the minister to carry the character of sobriety. And I'm going to explain that because you may have an English interpretation of sobriety. And I don't want you to get that messed up. But I just want you to see the text from which. Um, Christian is ascertaining this kind of character in the, the uh, facade of this person, the visage of this person. For a bishop, that's an overseer, must be blameless as the steward of God. There it is. The role is that of a steward. Not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, not a brawler. That is, he's not quick to punch somebody. Not given to filthy lucre. These are all negative characteristics. Not, 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 not. Okay. So, so if if I were to um, put those all up over here, this would if these would be what we would call antithetical characteristics, would they not? What would they not? And if he was dominated by those things, I would have to say he's what kind of minister? An unfaithful minister. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. Look at what it goes on to say. Verse 8. A lover of hospitality. A lover of good men. Agathos Anthropos. He's a lover of good men. He is sober. Notice the next word. He is just. He is holy. He is what? All right, so I'm going to use this verse before I move on to give you the, um, the actual definition of sobriety because it's inherent in this catalog. So sobriety doesn't have anything to do with, you know, inebriation at all. What this has to do with is an internal temperament of character that is able to maintain avoiding extremes in anything that he or she does. 
a sober person is temperate. Temperate means striking a balance of attitude, striking a balance of perspective, striking a balance of presentation, striking a balance of assessment and addressing life issues. When you meet a sober person, they are a very balanced person. Did that come home? It's important for you to know because this is why um, Paul uses these other adjectives. He's sober in that he's a just person. His goal is to maintain equity in relationships. Did that make some sense? Right. He's not given to uh, error. He's not given to misrepresentation. He's not given to falsehood. He's not given to uh, exaggerations. He's not given to gossip. He's not given to uh, uh, a postmodern irrationality. He's not given to fantasy. He is given to justice. He wants to make everybody, make sure everyone is operating on the plane of what's right. Did that make some sense? He's also given to holiness. He understands the value of his walk with God. He understands the value of his walk with God, which also means that when you meet a person who is sober, you're going to notice an individual who knows how to manage their time. A sober person manages his time, which means he doesn't spend all his time with people. If he spends all of his time with people, he will not be sober. People are a liability at the relationship level when they don't know the balance between space and relationship. Did that come home, ladies and gentlemen? So if you meet somebody who can't exist unless they're in somebody's space, in somebody's life, up against somebody, they got problems. The, far, the last thing they are is sober. They got issues. Pathological, okay? They needy, very needy. The minister cannot be needy that way. If the minister has to always be around people, they will find a vulnerability in him and take advantage of that. Did that come home? And, and by the way, I'll just use the term minister in a generic way for the moment as a point of application. This should be the case for every believer, too. Just as a point of application, it should be the case for every believer because we're all ministers in that fundamental sense. Does that make sense? And, and, and you, you'll know it, too, because when you are not careful with your time and not, not careful with your relationships and you're not careful maintaining the balance, you know it. You know, and you sense a danger from being out of balance, out of kilter. That makes sense, right? And this is why some people have to seek counsel and go to doctors and sometimes get on medicine because they are out of balance. It makes sense. All right. So this is extremely uh, important. So uh, the antithesis of sober would be foolish. I'm going to give that to you. Okay. Foolish and careless. Foolish and careless. Now, I want you to take those antitheses. Foolish meaning unsensible, insensible. That's the idea of foolish. And careless meaning irreverent, irreverent. So, so like, there are some people who are foolish, naively foolish, and they they slip into stupid things, and you know it, because they they don't have the discernment necessary to avoid, um, you know, falling into traps. And then others are careless because they like being in trouble. That makes sense. 
right? And so I'm going to give you a verse as an antithesis so we can work with this. This is going to be for us, the, uh, the book of Zechariah, chapter 11, verse 15 through 17. I just want to read these two verses, Zechariah 11, 15 through 17. So this is the first of your antithesis. When we're done, I'm going to open the floor for conversation because we need to have it. Listen to what he says. And the Lord said unto me, this is Zechariah, take unto you yet the instruments of a what? Foolish shepherd. Right. Right. So we got wise shepherds and we got foolish shepherds. The Bible is clear of that. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says the words of the wise are like goats. And they are they are like goads. The words of the wise are like goads that are used by the masters of assembly who are all governed by one shepherd. So shepherds are called to be wise. They're called to be discerning. They're called to be critical in their analysis. They're called to be people with whom you are safe. Here's the analogy. Shepherds are assigned over sheep. Okay, so you, you don't want a foolish shepherd. Look at, look at verse 16. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off. That's a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up shepherds in the land that will not visit those that are cut off. Well, why won't he visit those that are cut off? Those are sheep. Wouldn't he want them to be in the safety and security of the gospel? Is it, do I have to help you? Jesus said in Luke 15, when one sheep is lost, the faithful shepherd will set the 99 aside and go get that lost sheep. All I'm saying here is when you're a foolish shepherd, you don't care about the sheep. You only care about yourself. Neither shall he seek the young. Do you see it? He don't care about the young. Nor heal that which is broken. Nor feed that that standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Oh, is the metaphor amazing or what? So now the shepherd, rather than protecting the sheep, are eating the sheep. That's a foolish shepherd. Makes sense, right? This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, right? Beware of men in sheep clothing, but are ravening wolves. Right, so that's the first one. I'm going to leave that there. There, there are many verses that could substantiate the danger of foolish and careless shepherds. Let's, let's, take, a, let's take a walk through the rest of it. Uh, Subpoint B in our outline. Not only was he of a sober face, which, I, which what I mean by that is he's balanced, he's temperate. He has the capacity to actually uh, negotiate relationships in a way where he keeps his priorities straight. He's not, he's not uh, melancholy. He's not put offish. He is not someone with whom by his behavior, he pushes people away. That is not a sober person. Okay. I just want you to know that because we can make caricatures on the other side of the equation, right? Like you can have people that you look at them and when you look in their face, you, you, you back up and say, no, nah, I don't think, I don't think I want to talk to that. That's not sober. That's not sober. All right. Um, Jesus was sober. John the Baptist was sober. Do you understand? They were sober. And, and, and people love to hang with Jesus. Sinners love to hang with him. So, so what does a sober person look like who is attractive to sinners? 
See what I'm getting at? So don't mess this thing up with some kind of obtuse legal interpretation of sober, okay? Because we can, we can spend nights talking about the hypocrites in the church who put on a facade of sobriety. And, and behind closed doors, they're the greatest drunks on the planet. I could go there too. Uh, Titus chapter one. Uh, okay, yes. All right, so uh, sub point B. His head was pointed where? Where was it pointed? Right. So if you and I were looking at the picture of, of, of Pilgrim, looking at this brother, what he saw was a face of a man and his head was up. His head was up. And again, John three twenty seven. a man can receive nothing except to be what? Given to him from heaven. If his head is upward, what does that mean? He's minding what? Heavenly things. If his head is up, what does that mean? He has access to the mysteries. When his head is up, that means he prioritizes high things. Does that make some sense? Right. And because his head is up, he is made for relationship and fellowship with the true and the living God. That makes sense. Does that make sense? Jesus made it very clear when you go through the gospel, John 17, and he lifted up his head to heaven and spoke to his father. John 17 is your high priestly prayer. And Jesus is modeling what it means to lift the head up. Jesus frequently lifted his head to heaven and spoke to God. Did he not? He left that pattern for us. This is why we do it as a metaphor. This is why our hands go up. This is why our head go up. We do believe that the blessings come from above. Do they not? They come from above. This is critical to get. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. So a lot of times we are, um, we are tricked into, again, being um, counterproductive against ourselves. So sometimes when we are engaging in patterns, uh, physiological patterns, those physiological patterns are indicators of our value system. Those physiological patterns are indicators of our value system. And what I mean by that is, if you don't think you have enough uh, motive to lift your head to heaven and seek God in your mind, or even physically, then you are probably deficient in your understanding of the glory of God. Did that make some sense? You are deficient in your understanding of the glory of God. Because if you meet Christians and believers anywhere in the world, all around the world, who are in total need of God, heads up are constant, with the exception of the humility of bowing. Did that make some sense? And so when he says, and when I saw this man, he, had, he was of a sober face, his head was pointed where? Upwards to heaven. Because you and I need heaven to open up and bless us. Right? This is why every Sunday... After church, the Lord bless you, all right? The Lord keep you. The Lord calls his face to shine on That is anthropomorphical language of God approving of you and God resourcing you from heaven. Does it make sense? It's very important. And so I remember when I was a, a little child, we're getting ready to move to the third one for time's sake. I remember as a little child, I did not grow up in church at all. I escaped a whole lot of false religion. I was happy about that. But when I went back to Texas, my grandmama took me to church. And most of the church she took me to was her. Most of the church my grandma took me to was her. I don't even remember those little rinky-dink hole-in-the-wall churches they went to. But I, I remember watching my grandmama. And everything about her behavior was sober. 
and God word. I'm, I'm a little three-year-old, five, I was probably about five at that time, five or six-year-old boy hanging out with grandma and watching her like Pilgrim is watching this, this minister. And I'm remembering what she wears. I'm remembering the apron. I'm remembering her slippers. I'm remembering her mannerisms. She was a very sober woman, my grandmother, right? And she kept me by her side all the time. I don't know, maybe it's because I was hard-headed, but she kept me by her side. And I remember her reading the Bible to me. And I remember her making me kneel down and learn how to pray before I go to bed and all this stuff, you know, right? And it was, it was, it was, it was beautifully attractive because it was only a small portion of the vast majority of my sinful life in the hood, in the darkness of chaos. Did that make some sense? But it was a beautiful light that I took with me from Texas back to California, and it would mess with me. Does that make some sense? Do you see how powerful that expression, being living epistles written and known, you know, uh, on the hearts of men by God. That means you become the tabernacle of the most high God. This is why I said this is a what matter? What is this? That, and the light has to be where? In the heart. And if it's so, then you become the tabernacle. Right? So his head was pointed to heaven because heaven is where he drew his resources. What was in his hand? That's right. The word of God was in his hand. This is Second Timothy chapter Four. Um, I don't know why I'm quoting this. Second Timothy chapter uh, three, verse sixteen. Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. Listen to this. All Scripture is what given. Is that what it says? Right. So again, it's given from where heaven. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled where. Heaven has to open up and God's word has to come to us from heaven, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So this book we have is called the codification, the code of God's revelation to us. It's the depository of truth, sufficient. It's not the total revelation of God. It's just a revelation of God sufficient for us. The total revelation of God is himself. Did that make some sense? But this is adequate for our journey. This is the manual, right? This is the manual for our journey. I, I, I love this. And so let me see. Uh, pull up 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, maybe it's, it's 1 Timothy 4. It might even be 2 Timothy. Uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4. Yeah, no, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, we're getting there. Now the spirits. Uh, no, I don't think it is. Now, the spirit speaks expressly in the latter times that some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devil. That's this second Timothy four. Yeah, this is different. So go to second Timothy four, one and two. I, I'm thinking I'll know what comes up, but it may not. Uh, verse uh, verse one, I charge you. Yeah, here it is. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. This is what Christ will do when he returns. Verse two. Preach the be instant, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So that's the mandate for the faithful minister. You guys see that? that? That's his mandate. His mandate is to be near the word. Do you guys remember what else it said? I love this. Notice it says what was in his hand. We know a scripture. We agree with that, right? How did he hold it? So, and we talked about that a little bit. Christians saw that he held tight to the Bible and the inference in holding tight to the Bible is you can lose it. Right, you can lose it. 
You can lose it. So, so, and it's a metaphor. So the external image is indicating something internal in terms of his value of it. Would that, would that make sense? Right. And so if his head is to heaven where he is receiving from God revelation, he knows then his Bible is going to be the lamp, right? God is the light. The Bible is the lamp. Remember, the lamp has to have light that goes into it for us to get illumination. For uh, the faithful minister, the word of God becomes the source by which God communicates to us. And it becomes valuable enough to hold on to, to hold on to tightly. And so what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 9 and 10 are these words. You, you heard it before, but I'll just let it come home. Wherewithal shall a young man do what? Cleanse his way by doing what? Taking heed according to your word. So that means you got to have the word. That means you got to hold the word. That means you have to engage the word. And according to the Hebrew writer in chapter two, the word can slip from you. All right. So there's enough of us in the room where we can tell the truth. You can ask yourself over the course of the last year or two, whether or not you have held more tightly to the word or less tightly to it. You can ask yourself whether or not the word of God has slipped from your acquaintance and your fellowship with it, or whether or not the word of God has been an intimate friend with you at the level of active communion. Am I making some sense? Right. And I can tell you, your world is designed to build a wedge between you and scripture. And cause you to at some point loosen your grip on scripture. When you loosen your grip on scripture, you are opening yourself up to the counsel of the world. And then eventually the scripture is going to slip out of your hand. Luke chapter eight, verse 18. Pull it up. Watch this. So I'm just kind of giving you the antithesis. So when you meet a faithful minister, that's our first picture. That's what we're wording, working with. These categories are going to show up as indicators of his seriousness with God. He's going to be balanced in his character. He's going to be heavenly minded. That means he is easily engaging in dialogue and conversation of the heart in terms of God and his character and his qualities and his purposes and his desires for you. You are not going to be engaging with a faithful minister around foolish, silly, frivolous things that have nothing to do with sanctification and maturity and usefulness. Does that make sense? It's really important to know that. Take heed, therefore, how you what? Right. Well, faith comes by what? And hearing by what? So the inference is, is take heed how you hear the word. Right. For whosoever what? Half more shall be given. This is why the minister is gripping the Bible because he wants more of it. Not less. Because if he loosely has his Bible just kind of in the proximity and he doesn't open it and read it, it's going to come out of his heart. It's going to show up in his words. It's going to show up in his attitude. It's going to show up in his value system. Is it not? Is it not? Listen to what it says. And whosoever hath not, what that means is from him shall be taken even that which he what? So this is what parables do. This is a parable. This is the closing of the parable of the sower and the seed. It's the picture of a person pretending to know God, but not valuing God at high enough level to hold on to him. Does that make sense? 
Give you one more before we go on, because I, I, I promised I wanted to go on. But for me, what I've learned about God and the scriptures and people that meet God is that when people actually meet God, they don't want to let him go. Those are the two boys from Jerusalem going to, uh, uh, the, on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus showed up and revealed himself to them in the scriptures, they said, no, you cannot go. Right. Right. And it was an indication that the fellowship was such of such nature. They valued it and they weren't going to be the ones that cut that thing off. And that and it goes to show you also where you and I are in terms of what um, what what Paul would have told Timothy in verse three of Second Timothy chapter four. After he says, preach the word, instant in season and out of season, rebuke, you know, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when men and women will not endure sound doctrine. That's where we are and have been for a long time. Right. That's where we are and have been for a long time. I, I want to go on. I want to because I definitely want to get into some Q&A, see where you are before you guys turn into pumpkins, which you're about to do. Um. I love this. So point E, what was in his lips? The law of truth. The word of truth and the law of truth are one and the same. Do not do not argue about it. The word of truth, the law of truth. I'm going to give you two verses because I know exactly what Bunyan was doing. He was actually coming from the Levitical code in the book of Malachi, chapter two, verse five through seven. Every one of us operate out of two major, um, major callings. We are functioning as a prophetic institute and we are functioning as a what? Priestly institute. Now, here's the here's the here's the commandment to a priest. If you are operating out of a priest. No, I'm going to leave it because we're going to see him function in that here in a moment. Are we not? Listen to what it says. My covenant was with him of life and peace. Who is the him here? Actually, this is Phineas in, in Numbers chapter 25 when he thrust through the two people that were engaging in idolatry and God gave him the covenant. OK, my covenant. And it's really a picture of our savior who is the ultimate priest. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. I love that. That's that's that attribute of holiness. Remember, the minister is holy. There are some things that he fears when fools don't like irreverent people will cross lines into behavior that the the wise men or wise women said, no, no, I'm not going there because I fear God. All right. That'll keep you, won't it? That'll keep you from putting on a dress, won't it? And he was afraid before my name. Look at verse six, verse six, verse six. The law of truth was where? And iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. See, that's what we want to be. That's what we want to be. Is that what we want to be? Is this verse describing the man in our account explicitly? All right, let's go on to the other categories in your outline, because I want to I, I want to get get through this for today. We got a whole lot more work to do. What was in his lips? The word of truth. Right. Where was the world? So what 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 Pilgrim saw was that the minister's head was up to heaven. His hand was clenching the Bible and behind him was the world. Behind him was the world. 
and, 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 and this became for Pilgrim an affirmation that this individual was fully persuaded of the world to come. Fully persuaded of the world to come. And this too will speak into your and my value system and our attitude. Do you have a vivid enough clarity about the privilege of the world to come to help create the necessary balance in the world that is. Does that make some sense? All right, really, you're not out of the world. You're in the world. You, uh, you, you're very close to the world. You're not far away from the world. I'm, 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 you know, we can talk about this in a moment. And in some cases, you might be too close to the world, if you're going to be honest. Um, the world can be up on your back so close that, you know, if your back is turned to it, good, but it can still be an, an uncomfortable relationship, right? For Pilgrim, when he sees the man of God with his head up, the word in his mouth, and the world was behind him, he had basically rejected the world as being cursed, right? First John chapter 2 lays this out first and foremost, verse 15 through 17. Let's, let's, let's operate with this. Now, re- remember, we're not talking about the physical world. The physical world is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the systems of this world. The systems of this world. The ideologies of this world. The governmental frameworks of this world. The hyper-materialistic, godless, repetitive overtures of life is about now, this world. You guys understand what I'm getting at? Right. Make sure you you make a category between the physical world and the world of men. If you don't, you're going to engage in conflict in your soul. Can I tell you why? The world at present, even in its fallen state, I'm talking about the physical organic world is beautiful. It's compelling. It's exquisite. It is profoundly um, transcendent because of its correlation with the God that made it. It calls you. The physical world calls you to enjoy it, to know it, to be overwhelmed by it, to submit to it, to be subdued by it. Would you agree? So what I'm trying to help you understand is that what you and I don't want to do is sit in a kind of glass bubble and damn everything that's, you know, empirically observed, because that's not what your Bible is saying. Your Bible is not saying that. It is not saying that at all. You're going to miss a significant aspect of the majesty, the power, the glory, the order, the wisdom of God. If you don't pay careful attention to the organic structure. It will speak more to you than anything apart from your Bible. Did that make some sense? All right. I'm going to drill down just a little bit more into that. A balance between understanding and appreciating the world in terms of its creative order, its its effulgence. This is a, a Latin term that means all of the blessings that the world has available for us. Effulgence. Okay. Um, the effulgence of the world, if you and I can understand it, it, this takes some education, but if you can understand the world, you understand that God made a phenomenal thing called earth, okay? Now, and, and if one had the ability to actually put together, you know, on a mathematic level, the science of astronomy, you would be absolutely blown away about the order of the cosmos, 
if we were to go into it, there is all kinds of gospel insight in the cosmos that is phenomenal. One would recognize that Christ is the redeemer of the constellations. He didn't just throw that stuff up there, you know, you know, willy nilly. It all landed perfectly to create a narrative of the glory of God and the redemption of sinners, too. That's another conversation, but it's there. You're not going to look into the heavens according to Psalm 19 and the heavens not speak to you. You're not going to walk the earth and the earth not say the Lord has been here. You're just not going to do it if you have enough humility to recognize that there was a creation narrative instructing Adam before he had a codified Bible. Say amen. Amen. Right. And and the reason why I'm sharing that is because I know how we can get. This is called uh, theological and propositional claustrophobia. Okay, this is called theological and propositional claustrophobia. Y'all want me to tell you? It's when you're too lazy to understand that which is taking place outside of the scope of your own awareness. Right. And you'll hear people wax eloquent about how bad the world is. And then you go, so where you been? I ain't been nowhere. (laughs) Haven't left California, but the world is bad. You haven't been to the Grand Canyon You haven't been to Niagara Falls. You haven't been anywhere in the States, which is absolutely majestic in its glory and fullness. You haven't left the Atlantic Ocean. You haven't transversed the Pacific Ocean. You haven't went to the Middle East. You haven't went to Asia. You haven't went to Europe. Please stop. You haven't been nowhere. You're an ignorant, buffoonish individual to condign everything as completely useless and irrelevant. That becomes a condemnation of your God when you do that. Remember, God walked a long ways with his sons and daughters at the creation story account before giving them a Bible. Walk through the book of Job. I should stop. Walk through the book of Job. Because Job had no problem calling upon the wisdom of the ancients in relationship to the God who was high and lifted up and in relationship to the animals that were made in relationship to the stars in relationship to the creation that testified and preached and taught of the certainty of his redeemer of all things. He reached into all of those educational sources in order to preach Christ. Did he not? See what I'm getting at, you guys? You see what I'm getting at? All right. And and also what that would mean, I'm going to give some props to my brothers and sisters whom God had given the stewardship to be closer to the earth than us. All of the families on the earth that were given the stewardship to be closer to the earth than us can sit us down and teach us a bunch of things about God. Did you hear what I just stated? And it would humble you. It would humble you. It would humble you. You go, whoa, I'm as dumb as a dodo bird. You mean God has given us enough wisdom that we could actually survive if we paid attention to herbs and roots and plants and trees and seasons, am I making sense? Right. The earth is full of the wisdom of God. Listen to Psalm 24, verse one. Listen to it. Then we'll go on. I'm actually, I'm going to stop here and open up the floor for some Q&A because I want to get out of here a little after nine. Listen to Psalm 24. The earth is a what? It's not yours. 
It's the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the what? Fullness. The fullness. There it is. So, so, so that's, my, that's my argument. There's a level of fullness in the universe that is so absolutely the, the, the plethora of blessings that exist in our universe. Actually, the reality is because we are going backwards in terms of the noetic effect of sin, we are actually inhibiting our capacity to increase in wisdom by the things made. The fall of mankind has hindered humanity from being able to plumb the depths of the things made to be able to enjoy them at a fuller level of which God intended to occur. But because we've got trapped in the dialectic of conflict and debate and war, we're committed to survival as animals. We can't enjoy the the benefits of creation as we would, and therefore grow in wisdom and knowledge. Am I making some sense? Very much so. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and the world, and they that dwell therein. And you know the sad reality about this, as I'm going to share with you on Sunday? God gave this universe to us. He gave it to us to enjoy and glorify him in, right? All right, so I'm just, I'm going on a caveat. Somebody get the mics. I'm going to let y'all talk for about 10 minutes. I'm going on a caveat right here. Here's what I believe. I believe that we don't have to actually create no, no other new technological gadgets. I, I, I believe that all we would have to do if we could get a hold of the us, uh, usurpers and get rid of them is just go back to the manual and begin to investigate the treasures that have been hidden from us by them and recover ourselves across a whole litany of areas in our lives where we have been plundered physically, emotionally, psychologically, sociologically, economically. And we can reverse this whole thing for all 8 billion of us on the planet right away. Did that make some sense? Right. I really do believe that. I believe that if we can really overcome the most diabolical system in the world, which is called politics... Raise your hand if you want to talk to me because they're walking around. They ain't just burning calories. You got to, y'all got to turn around because you can't just look that way because they don't want to. People have their hands up. Um, one of the goals of the devil is to keep you from knowing what he stole from you. You don't believe that? What if What if part of the redemption plan of Mashiach is to actually reposition us so that we can be part of the restoration of the things that are, that really have not been plumbed by the enemy in order that it might advance into the full eschaton that it was purposed for in the first word. I'm messing with you, but I got theology here. I'm not going to do it now, but I'm messing with you to actually talk about how restoration works. Think about it in your own life. I'm just going to use one analogy, and this will have to be with the anatomical warfare of the, or the warfare in our bodies. The warfare that goes on in our bodies because the enemy wants to take us out. And our body is the earth too. This body is the earth. It is a little world. And what if God wanted to to shift us, paradigm us in a way in which he would open up the vast resources 
of all of the natural powers of our physical world. So there's just a little herb here, a little herb there, a little this, a little root here, a little root there, and voila, we recover from all of these diseases, all of these aberrant, you know, invasive products that are synthetic in nature, and we could just experience the reversal of healing. Now, I gave you a hypothetical there. I know it's true. You know how I know it's true? Because whenever you and I engage in any good thing, we go into recovery. Did you hear what I just stated? We're we're just not smart enough to capture the philosophy. Every good thing puts you into recovery. Is that right? Every good thing. If that's true, if we were able to quantify those good things by capturing control of the organic world, we could unleash the vault of all of those good things that are being held back from us because the powers that be want to create a synthetic world to keep us sick and to destroy our capacity to think broadly and to think godly and therefore to think productively and to think charitably. If we could get those things back, we could actually see a reversal of the curse in our lives by the things that are made. Does that make sense? All right. Take some questions and then we'll pick up on this on Tuesday. A few more things here we can we can mess with. Who who has a who has a mic? Ladies first. No ladies. All right. Going on, James. Would it be wrong to connect last year's theme with this year's theme? Uh, arise, move, and go, and apply it to what uh, Pilgrim is doing, what he's working through right now. No, absolutely not. So think about the the uh, last year's theme, right? Arise, move, and go. That's a running narrative. Like that, you know, you don't arise, move, and go for a year and then stop, <laughs> right? So it's a running narrative. You and I are headed to glory. Obviously, the Pilgrim's Progress has that as an overarching theme. So we're going in that same direction. What I believe that I wanted us to do with the Pilgrim's Progress, which we're doing, is to actually be a little bit more critical about the important doctrinal elements that make our journey safe and productive. Does that make some sense? Like, so I'm forcing a lot of us to pay attention to detail because that's what Pilgrim is doing paying attention to detail. And it's helping, is it not? It's helping because, again, I could go. The way your world is set up, it controls your time. Now, is God in control of time or is is the world in control of time? Right, so could you feasibly conceive of being the one that gets designated by God? You, I'm talking to you. And you be the one that gets to unleash humanity from the rigors and tyranny of a 24-hour day. Can you imagine what kind of freedom would occur if you could be liberated from the tyranny of a 24-hour day? And being told, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, you got to do You got to get all that done in about 12 hours. Right. Because somebody has given you a value system. 
This is a synthetic constructed value system that we are on. Almost as if God gave it to us. He really didn't. It's been invaded. It has been usurped. Now, God has given us full days to do this, do that, six days labor, seven days, give him some props, right? But the way it looks is as if the systems in this world are driving you into a kind of prison for control of your time. I know it's true. I know it's true. And, and how we know is that for many of us who want to do more and want to do better, we are saying, I need more. Right. Right. See, it's, it's, this, it's this synthetic prison that we're operating out of. You agree with me? Right. You done? Just on what you were saying, it's kind of ironic what you just said. We have all these modern devices always talking about we need more time. You know, how is that? It's always, it was always interesting to me that we was blessed to have a job to go to for eight hours. You did your job and you came home. Now with technology, they think they can hit you anytime. Well, I sent you an email. Yeah, I read my emails between 8 and 5. I don't look at the emails after that. And don't try texting me. I, I'm paying for the phone. No, you ain't paying for this phone. I'm paying for this phone and I'm not answering. But they try to control every single thing when really that time belongs, and all time belongs to God. But it's interesting uh, in how you, to your point, how I've noticed that. And when you shut them down, they sometimes get offended because they think they own you. Now, very much so. So this here, again, this here is crossing uh, parameters and boundaries of, of relationships at the level of things that are sacred, such as time. So you're right. Obviously, technology has a benefit. We don't want to deny that. I don't want us to do that here. Don't, don't practice faulty bifurcations. I ain't saying you did that. I'm saying I want us to not do that. I don't want us to be constantly trapped by bad logic and end up contradicting ourselves. Okay, because that, that's not good. Because like you can't, people that are thinking things through can't trust you if they can't see that you see when you contradict yourself. That makes sense, right? So um, obviously technology can be extremely beneficial, but it has to be managed. So management is a responsibility of ours, is it not? Right, and so sometimes you have to really begin to rewire your mechanisms of priorities and choice making in order to do a better job of managing something called your time so that as we learned about the faithful minister, he understands holiness. He understands how to spend time with God. He's not giving himself to the whole world. You're not going to text the minister and get him whenever you want to. Hint, hint, (laughs) hint. And I'm just saying, you know, people get mad at me. Pastor, I text you. So what? <laughs> so what? A hundred people text me a day, okay? Um, and, and I would be a wreck if you thought you actually can get to me when you want to. Right? Or me, you. Or me, you. Like, to his point, just five minutes ago, the moment you walked out the room, I had no contact with you until we saw each other face to face again. Do y'all remember that old people? The old people. Do y'all remember the day when a person left your presence 
No pagers. No beepers. No phone. Right. And we did fine. Do we? Old people. Any old people in the house with me? Old people. Did we? Did we do all right? And by the way, by the way, wasn't life qualitatively better? When it was just you and God. <laughs> so one of the one of the things you will learn about the warfare that you're in is that you're obligated to break synthetic barriers yourself and restructure your life in a way in which you prioritize your walk with God and healing begins there. My sister. So this is, of course, a divine conversation because I was just talking to Lisa about this on the way here. I felt, um, and I'm so grateful because Pilgrim takes the invitation um, in, the, in the word to, to, to spend time with God. And like we're saying, you know, all of the stuff comes into our world. And I was having a really hard time being obedient in my call to spend time. After I got baptized, I really felt a calling to just kind of really be in the word and, you know, just go to a... Um, secret, like just a really soft, beautiful place with, with God, but I felt like almost guilty because of the things we're mentioning, and I was very diligent and obedient, and I did it, and I came out, and I found so much in, it was like I was telling her, it was the hard work of rest. It's yep. the, so hard to unwind yourself, but I can say this, if you just surrender and submit to it, when you come through, God has things for you in there. And you might be working on a big old mountain, and if you just take that day or two and just step out, he can move a whole city. So um, I, I totally agree. I, I just really um, am so grateful for this conversation, and I think that um, us as a, a church, if we can, I don't know if we have to set our alarm earlier or go to bed, you know, before we go to bed, but really spend that um the secrets in the secret place, that really intimate time of just worship and prayer. And like we see in the portrait, looking up, guys, eyes gazed up in our word, you know, and if it, we can only do five minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is, but just use the things that we're learning in the study of the pilgrim um, through that portrait to, is, as a um, kind of pointing us to uh, uh, a lesson that we can teach ourselves. Agreed. Agree. Qualitatively engaging God is is almost always the number one thing. Qualitatively. So I, I talked to us about this a couple Sundays ago at the end of the service about praying for one minute, three times a day. Y'all remember that? Right. That was the whole point. The point is qualitative time, not necessarily quantitative. Like Cindy is saying, you could, one could say, I'm going to take an hour a day and completely um, vacate all of my responsibilities and find a way to privatize time with God. And, and like Cindy said, you probably will go through um, withdrawals. And, and this is really true because you're not used to time with God alone. And, and when I say withdrawals, it will be withdrawals around the idea of um, focus, interest, and then persistence in that focus and interest 
until it becomes interesting and it becomes edifying. Right. So don't act like you don't know what I just stated, because one of the reasons that we don't do what we know we should do is because we are in patterns of demotivation. I've talked to you about that before. When you are in cycles and patterns of demotivation, you don't have the want to. The goal of this world is to take the want to of closeness and fellowship with God away from you. So that even if you could wrestle some time to yourself, you still now have to bring yourself into conformity at different levels and processes to get to a place where that time is beneficial. That's why I said pray for one minute. And I can tell you there are people who have a hard time praying for one minute. Right, because you have to reorient it. You have to now be counterintuitive to the fasting you have been engaged in by not spending time with God. You, you, give, you find an hour where it's just you and God and you're like in a prison. You're just looking at the wall. I don't know what to do. I'm making some sense, am I? And so you have to pray your way into that state of sanctification and productivity for that space. You can practice it for 10 minutes. You can practice it for 20 minutes. If you practice your way into it, you will discover that God will meet you in it as he almost always does. And, and you, won't, you won't find yourself at the end of that, that exercise going, you know what? This was not profitable for me. You won't find that to be the case at all. But you, you and I are simply underscoring a reality right now that I think is important for us to drill down into. And I'm very thankful that you are here engaging me with this. So think about what we do here in this, this moment. Let's think about this and we'll take our next, next uh, uh, person. The reason for which you might be compelled to do a Bible study like we're doing It's because in a Bible study setting, it's not always guaranteed, but in a Bible study setting, this is a passive blessing largely for you. Tell the truth. Right. Now, it's not a guarantee that we can enter into Koinonia, our fellowship. It's not a guarantee. But God has been mighty good to us for a long time that it does happen. That when we come together, he meets us through an effort of exhortation, scriptural development that creates a voiceless dialogue that allows expansion, illumination, allows, you know, strengthening and humility. The whole process of this event that we're doing now Um But on the part of most of us in these events, when we're listening to somebody else, you're passive. You have to wrestle with yourself to be able to get everything off the plate of the discourse that you possibly could. Does that make some sense? But what makes you come back again and again and again is that the event is motivating. And this would be true for whatever it is that you're doing too. 
get to a place where when you determine to have communion and fellowship with God, that you put yourself in a position where it incrementally motivates. Lord, motivate me to spend time with you. That way you don't merely go through bodily exercises, which is not fellowship. It's not fellowship to go, oh, okay, I'm going to just read about it. Because in your mind, you drifted. You, in your mind, you are, you close the book. Right? So, you know, girding up the loins of your mind. This is the area of, of soberness, temperance. It is a warfare to restrain yourself. You have to, you have to um, create motivational principles that says, it is good for me to read God's word. It is good for me to hear myself audibleize scripture, right? So how, 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 this is what I love about Psalms 119. It's, it's so, it's so, remember the word unto your servant upon which you have caused me to hope this is my comfort in my affliction because your word has quickened me and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth because I have hoped in your judgments. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproaches me because your word is true, right? So now scripture is coming back to me because I'm, I'm recalling it, okay? And I can go and I can go, but I got to work at it. But the reason I can do it is because I have it. Did that make some sense? Right, because years ago, Luke 8, 18 bothered me. The one that hath more shall be given. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, right? Whosoever believeth on God is already born of God. I mean, I'm just quoting scripture because that's how you demonstrate that you have it. And what's the promise if you have it? More shall be given. So some of us have to recover the half so that more can be given. And I'm not necessarily saying in this context here that you need to memorize scripture. I am saying that you need to have a relationship with God through the scriptures. And part of that is being done by being in a very healthy expository Bible teaching scenario. But I can tell you what you can fall prey to is you can fall prey to eating the meal and not taking the menu with you, if that makes sense, right? And we just, I'm just going to go eat, I'm going to go eat, you know, and, and all of us can do that. But I, and I don't want to play that down because there will be a day when we won't be able to do this, I promise you, and then we will be fasting on what we gathered, right? And because and there are saints all over the world doing that right now. And we got, we got, to, we got to thank God for them and pray for them. Who has a mic? Um, Lisa. Do you, do you think that we're getting so addicted to our cell phones and like I see people walking down the street like they're, they're like robots? So, so are you saying we, we, we are they? Me. Okay. They? Are you walking down uh, the street with your... Not with me, your... but I'm looking at them when I'm holding my cell phone, looking at my cell phone, looking at them walking down the street. Um, but like when we have something happen to, you know, like the EMF thing, that we're going to short circuit and not even know what, like, I feel like coming, when I come here on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and then all the time we're having, I feel like I'm detoxing from it. 
because I'm not scrolling and looking at. I love that. What's, what's I love going that. On. I love that. That's so such a confession. Think about what she just said. Now you may not be one. I'm not one that's always going through my phone, but that doesn't mean anything. Everywhere I look, that's what people are doing. And anytime they're stationary, that's what they're doing. So it might be so, right, that the reason why for some of us, 40 or 50 of us, it's easy to do Bible study together is because we're not trapped at that level by our phones. Other people that are trapped at that level can't do but five minutes in here. Then they got to get up and leave. And what they're doing is checking their phone. Am I making some sense? Right. Um, But, and I only say that as an observation because I I haven't really thought it through. I'm just simply saying, of course, if people have a pattern of perpetual engagement with this technology that they cannot give prolonged periods of time to God without interrupting him by that mechanism. That makes sense to me. Go on. Well, I was around that point of that we're, we're energy sources and they're picking up on us because they're spying on us. They're not only spying on our thoughts, but they're spying on our energy and they're seeing how we are when we're reading all this stuff and we're probably, I mean, we're very similar because, you know, when we're reading it, we go into this kind of homeostatic stasis, homeostasis, homeostasis, mm-hmm. and then they'll know that we're, we'll be like drug addicts, like, like, where's my heroin when they turn it off and we'll... It's not of, a, it's not a will be, it is already that way. So you're speaking about something that is already largely 60, 70, 80 percent of human beings in the technical world. Homeostasis has set in. Um, and, 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 and so many other uh, biophysical markers showing up in deterioration of health, deterioration of energy, deterioration of focus, psychological problems, aberrant all over the place, you know, hypertension, depression, ADHD, psychosis, you know, all kind of pathologies are happening they are, at, they are, you know, accelerated by, by, by this event. But also, may I say, just as a rule, it's just our environment at large as well because you don't have to necessarily have a cell phone to be targeted by e- EMF and EMPs that are everywhere, okay? So you and I are dealing with electromagnetic frequencies at significant levels across our nation and our world enough for it to be a problem in buildings, in homes, in condos. There's a lot of that going on. I'll say this caveat, then I want to go on because I want to catch you a few more before closing. Definitely want to catch you both. Um, Here's the way I would want you to visualize what we're talking about here as we're dealing with uh, an adversarial world, an invasive and adversarial world at the level of technology. We have to admit that it's so. Can you visualize this? Can you visualize that your body and your spirit 24 hours a day is fighting against this. Can you visualize that? All right. So what I, what I want you to do is own that warfare so that you are not um, ignorantly or naively passive. Does that make some sense? 
on the fact that your body is made to fight against antigens and pathogens. It's made to fight against that. It's made to fight against antigens and pathogens, whether they are synthetic or whether they're organic, whatever there are. Any, any kind of overload seeking to invade your body from within or without, your body is seeking to fight it with your innate and your active immune system. This is the reason why you can get up every day and some days you feel great. Are you guys listening to me? Now, this is important. I want you to get this. This is important to give God glory for. It's important to give God glory for a good day. And don't act like, you know, a whole hum. Are you crazy? There are people dying every day whose bodies give up fighting. I'm dealing with cases like that among us now. Young people. You know, the body succumbs. Pathogen, antigen, cancer. Which is not a death sentence if the person wants to fight and know how to fight. That's life. But I'm, I'm talking to the 50 or 60 of you in here. If, if you're doing all right today, count your blessings. Don't, 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 don't. Don't act like this is nothing. This is something. Remember, you weren't doing all that well last week. Two weeks ago, you, you were down. You back up again. That's the mercy of God. Right. And so what, what you do with that knowledge is go, OK, can I actually can I actually adorn this recovery? Can I facilitate this recovery? Can I can I change some patterns in my life to add? Can I build? Can I can I put more um, apparatus on this artillery of my physical health and actually do better going forward? Am I making some sense? Can I sleep a little bit more wisely? Can I rearrange my emotional makeup so I'm not dissipating in argumentation and fixating on things that don't matter a little bit more? Because that is conducive to your health as well. How you think is conducive to your health, child of God. Am I making some sense? Can I use can I use some choice making and avoiding some people? I'm getting back to some fundamentals because I'm on a health kick right now. I'm trying to be healthy. I'm trying to recover because I know my body will actually respond well if I assist it. Right. I am the temple of the living God and God dwells in me and he calls me to store in this body wisdom so that it can do what it needs to do. And, and if we are all operating at that kind of level of consciousness, we're going to have victories every day. Victories every day. And, and when you labor in that kind of awareness, you get to have great sleep at night. How many of you guys love sleep? <laughs> I actually study my sleep. And I get up in the morning, I go, that one wasn't cool. That one was not cool. No, you know, some of us do study our sleep. You guys know that because we have to. We have to determine whether or not our sleep was qualitative. And, and equally quantitative because we know to what degree, if we don't have it, we're not going to be capable of reaching certain goals. Yeah. 
and, and if our energy level by virtue of a good night's sleep is not there, I'm going to have some problems with my attitude. And then the battle's on. Any other ladies before we go on? Jenny, Jenny. Okay, I'll get you in a second, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, this is a really good conversation. I just wanted to somewhat piggyback, summarize, and just share thoughts, too, about what we do with our downtime. And I think that's kind of ties in with some of the things that you were teaching today, but also what these other ladies have said. Because I, I, for a while, had questions like what because we struggle with you know television or phone or you know entertainment drawing us in because that's what it's designed to do yes ma'am so it has its benefits yes ma'am and speaking of benefits of the phone i do have devotionals that i read on my phone and i got one rc sproul is just i love him (laughs) and he has a um you just basically just said a bunch of the stuff he said too though and it was that's because he's one of my patron saints right (laughs) he's he's great but he um it it was like perfect like finally answered because i've been asking this for years like i would sit here and i would do bible studies like literally me and my son will sit there and study and then i'd be like all right now what do i do because you'll you'll be like okay I'm, i'm doing i know i'm doing what God's will is right now, but then what do I do with the rest of the time, right? Um, and it's so easy to slip into something else. But I, uh, he had a whole list of things that he did, and I was like, duh, why didn't? <laughs> when one of them was art, and when I read that, I was like, okay, I can start drawing again, and I've started drawing again. And there was just other things, uh, reading books, and then I started reading books again, and then you started doing the Pilgrim's Progress, and I was like, wow, this is like perfect, because I already was, had it on my bed. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is awesome. By the way, if, if anyone wants to put their hands on one of the oldest editions oh, wow. of Pilgrim's Progress, I'll, I'll let it pass around, but I better get it back. If anybody wants to just look at it, you can come grab it and take a look at it, yeah, take, and, and pass it around if you want to. Make sure I, I get it back. It. Go ahead on. This one um, here is 1686 or something. Yeah, it's a it's a older version. Don't mess that book up, boy. Anyhow, go on. That's what when I one of the things I would ask too. But I would have to think back. I would have to go. Okay, I have all this stuff today in two thousand wherever we're at, right? <laughs> two thousand twenty-four. <laughs> it's whatever year it is. Um, but I like to look back a lot like that. And what what were they doing? What was I doing when I didn't have all this? And I just had to remember that, like, it's just as simple as watching the sunset. But he said things like, you know, like exercise, art, reading, um, setting a schedule, going to bed really early, uh, early or getting up really early. And there was just all these things that he laid out that were really healthy things that are just, they're, they're common sense things. But for some reason, the, the phone, because it like, well, it's so easily accessible, it's right there. And TV's right there, and we just, you know, I was just sharing that, that, you know, and in a sense confessing that, too, that that's been a struggle of mine as well, to, uh, I want to be a, a strong servant of the Lord, but there's these things, right? <laughs> the things that I do, I would not, whatever, <laughs> right? Like Paul. Um, but that was helpful for me, was to just basics, like paint, <laughs> draw. Very, very create, good. Create if you're a musician, you know, whatever. Do something creative. Play chess. Like we have our brother that does the chess here, um, and I still and I do things on my phone too as well. The crossword puzzles and things like that to like exercise my brain. And those are things that I can do instead of watching um, 
things on social media, it's not all bad, but I mean, for the most part, there's stuff that's just influencing us and it's stealing our, the things that we've been fed here, like today. It's so easy to, for it to just, you know, be distracted and then now we're looking at all that. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> that's all I wanted to say. No, you did good. I'll, I'll organize some of that towards the close. Sarah? You got, is the mic on? You got to cut it off. You got to cut it off. There you go. Push it up. Hello. <laughs> um, I just wanted to read what I wrote down out of the book that I was reading, and it, it just, you were saying some things about excellence and um, kind of touch on what this young lady was saying. So I'm reading the book, The Art of War for a Spiritual Battle. Mm hmm. Um, on page 155. <laughs> it says, in the movie The Last Samurai, The Last Samurai Soldier, generals were trained in the art of excellence, even when it came to the smallest matter of preparing, preparation for serving tea, tending a garden, mending their clothes, sharpening their, sharpening and caring for their weapons, training their bodies and what they ate and how they ate. Everything they engaged in was an art and cared a form of respect in its practice. No detail was too small to be attended to with excellence. So it just made me think of in everything that I do, and everything that I do is supposed to be done to the Lord, whether it's helping my mom, talking with somebody, or, you know, everyday things, you know, so. Right. What he's talking about there is, is called intentionality. That's called intentionality. I do want to make an observation about that before I close. I'm going to, I'm going to share a quip and close with you on that. Um, who else has the mic? Lamont? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I did, I, I like what you said concerning uh, passive income. And I, I just want to highlight a little bit on that. Um, I even recently got a employment for a retired contractor and I'm his extension in the contract he's holding. And from my work, he's getting passive income. And also uh, in the light, in the thought of passive income, obviously he's receiving a passive voice now because I'm active voice right. in uh, doing what is needed. Um, thinking about everyone who's here, approximately 50 individuals, uh, individuals that are listening uh, online, uh, I don't know, several hundred, several tens. Um, there's, as we know, uh, you know, like Paul said that he planted, and when you're speaking, for some, it may be sowing the seed, maybe yeah. just planting. Agreed. Um, Apollos water, you're speaking, and for others, plant is already there, yes, sir. you could be watering. I agree. But here's a blessed thing um, for some when you're speaking, a sunrise comes up, and that's God's increase. Yes, sir. You know, like God, the son of man rising with healing in his wings. Yes, so, sir. You know, all three of those aspects, and probably more, um, are going on from your fountainhead, or from God through you, as a fountainhead extension to us. So I really like that, uh, and, and I compliment that. And so um, here's a little uh, little thought that 
came to me concerning all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And um, perhaps, and I stand to be corrected, um, when one is converted, it can be a positive thing. But now... Um, I agree. Yes. Uh, in that the lust is simply covetousness. Um, and we have that. We all have that. Uh, the lust of the flesh is for the individual. I would term that as selfish, separate for that person alone. And then the lust of the eyes is looking without. Um, uh, soldiers spy out other uh, landmarks that they wish to conquer with their eyes. They go in, they do a survey. Yes, sir. Um, Reconnaissance. And so our individuals see another group of people or neighborhoods and they become envious. In the pride of life, they, you know, they lift up their activity towards either stealing, killing, destroying, violence. Um, but when the light is commanded to shine out of darkness, uh, as God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, when that shines in our hearts and we're converted by the gospel, um, our separation becomes a hunger and thirst after his righteousness for ourselves because we're desperate for that which we heard to receive more and more of it. Agreed. And so when, when we, you know, we listen uh, to what we read because in the beginning we don't understand that much but we keep looking in the glass after we hear brethren like you, John MacArthur and others and um, we look into the glass of the word of God and if we keep looking and we keep thinking on those things we're changed into that image from glory to glory as same, by the same spirit of God that convicted us and then rather than lifting up with pride we lift up the name of the Lord, as you just said, by adorning the doctrine. Yep. And by uh, adorning or trimming the lamp of the word. Yep. As the wise virgins did. So just that, that's all I have to say. No, very good. Very good. Being able, it's, this, this is called redeeming. Redeeming. That's a, that's a, redempt, a redemptive. Intentionality. Redemption is intention. Redemption is intention. Of course. We are, this is also part of the recovery. When we can overcome the toxic inversion of behavior, that's a consequence of having been perverted and get back on the right trail, we're in recovery. Right, absolutely. Lust doesn't go away, it gets directed towards something that is much more positive and advancing in the cause of Christ. Definitely. It's very, very good. And Lamont could have said a whole lot more. Anybody else before we get ready to close? Uh, Marlis? Hi, you mentioned um, about um, the body and, and, and needing, um, needing energy. It made me ask, it made me want to ask you a question. I hope it's okay to ask this question. Um, I took the vaccine and I want to know does have you heard anything about I mean I, the last time I took it was about a year ago um, does the vaccine actually take away energy does it are you aware if it causes fatigue or kind of like a chronic fatigue kind of thing or 
Thank you for being, um, thank you for being marvelous. Yes. All right. So. I'm not sure what. You're getting ready to find out. Why you so you can, you, so you, you, can, you, you can take the mic from her now. <laughs> no, I, 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 I already, already know. I, I, don't, I don't want you to. The reason why I asked the question is. I, 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 no, I got it. Let me, let, me, let me work with that because I want to close out because I'm very conscious of our time. And, you know, we, people have been here for a long time. It's time. I, when I say that, I, I mean that in all sincerity. And I'm hoping that the saints at Grace have grown up enough to not feel like it's all right to hurt people when they tell you that they took the shot. Hurt people by going off and data dumping. Um, particularly when they say it out loud like, like Marlis did. A lot of people took the shot. A lot of my family took the shot. Um, so I'm going to share some things with all of you because I keep up with all of this data all the time. Um, 22% of people were visibly and detectably harmed by the shot. So, so that would mean out of 100 people, we would know 22 people that were physically harmed. You don't have to try to go across some kind of scale of what that looked like. You don't have to do that. There were 1,279 symptoms. We talked about that earlier on. It's more than that now. But imagine that in conjunction with the vast majority of us already injured by life. The vast majority, of, even your children, injured by life. Comorbidities, autoimmune deficiencies, and a plethora of other things that are normative for Western Americans in terms of sickness. I want to contextualize this because that's what I kind of meant by making sure every day you thank God for the measure of health that you have. Because it's only relative. You could be having a great day and you could be at stage four cancer. So it's only relative. So the question that Marlis raised was very insightful because Marlis has been listening to me for years and we wrestled with this one. And she told me why she did it. And I understood it. Didn't agree with it, but I understand it. A lot of people did it for a lot of different reasons. And, and some people will, will say, didn't anything happen? And we will know why. Because we understand the variables and the batches. We understand the placebo in many of the vaccines. And this is what I often was saying to people in private. I hope that you got a batch that had such a low content of uh, mRNA technology that it wouldn't really do much to you. That's my hope. Because they felt like they needed to keep their job, so they did it. And other people um, that took it had immediate, immediate impact. 
And, and that is not like a mystery. It's a consequence of a couple of factors. Where you got the shot, what was in the batches in terms of how much mRNA technology was in it because what the technology does is it produces a synthetic spike protein in your body which is designed to affect an immune response that is allegedly supposed to fight off um, SARS-CoV-2. But the spike protein is one of about seven or eight other problems with the technology. In the area of the spike protein, what it does is actually damage other cells in your body because it doesn't go where it should go to isolate and create an immune response so that your immune system is the only thing hunting down the virus. And like anything, if you shot anything into your body, I'm not going to play doctor, but I'm just going to kind of help you. If you shot anything into your body and your immune system picks it up as an antigen, it's going to be, there's going to be a, a response. Your body's just going to respond, okay? I was thinking about this when I grew up in the hood, and this will be in a, a bit of an analogy so you can hear it. I grew up in the hood, and from my earliest days, I was aware of the use of speed, crank, heroin, cocaine. Speed, crank, heroin, cocaine. Of my earliest days, four or five years old. And I, I, I grew up in a culture where heroin and cocaine were cut. And you would cut heroin and cocaine with, with what would be innocuous additives. But over time, they would start using other things in it. And, and they would call it just junk. They would use a profane word. S-H-I-T, but it was junk. And what they discovered is the human body can take a lot of junk. Baking soda, flour, other methamphetamines, aspirin, ton of stuff. Are y'all listening to me? The human body can take in a lot of junk. And the people that know this better than the dope dealer is the pharmaceutical agency. Here's what your pharmaceutical agencies know. The body can take in a bunch of junk. So, almost all of vaccines have enough junk in it to create short-term and long-term adverse reactions in the body. And a lot of it is the junk. Did you hear what I just stated? I mean, pure junk. It really is a crime. So we get back to Marlis. Because fatigue is a prominent symptom, but it's also generic. Like um, inflammation, uh, headaches, um, blood clotting at the micro level, um, motor skill diminishment, loss of focus, loss of vision, diminished vision, tons of things. The list goes on and on and on. And most people in that, in that, in that threshold are experiencing those things at minimal levels but cannot detect the correlation 
between the vaccine and those indicators because we're so used to being fundamentally sick and toxic anyway, if that makes sense. Now, because our sister was so gracious with what she was asking, um, it's going to be hard to know whether or not the fatigue that you're dealing with is a direct consequence of the jab um, because our doctors and our pharmaceutical industry has not done a full-scale post-vaccination analysis of the people who have taken the jab, which by now they would have had a thousand pages of information by which they could develop patterns. Does that make sense? They could have easily done this now and, 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 and had some kind of metric as to uh, the, the, the proximal correlation between the jab and, and people's illnesses like lethargy and fatigue. Lethargy and fatigue is at one of the top of the charts. It's called long COVID uh, lethargy. The hiding behind long COVID, but a lot of us know that it was induced by, by the jab. But, but more to the point, like for you, sis, is, you know, the question we started asking shortly after we were able to affirm the diabolical nature of the jab is what can we do to heal? We started dealing with that early on and we started talking about the need to detox, uh, to need to cleanse your body, the need to be proactive about cleaning your system. And quite interestingly enough, here's what I would say. In the same way in which a person who might detect that they took one shot or two shots and are feeling weird and they would be told, take the detox protocols that we freely give, we freely share it. You, you guys know that, right? Freely. I mean, there are tens of dozens of great doctors out there with massive comprehensive protocols to help cleanse your body. I recommend it to people who didn't even take the shot. Because just imagine, you know, just not having taken the shot and still, <laughs> I bet you some folks in there saying lethargic. Girl, I'm lethargic and I haven't taken the shot, right? Um, so you're not, you're not by yourself with the lethargy, you know, that's a big problem. And, and we would say that your system needs to be cleansed out. So I'm going to give you a, a visual and, and I'm going to let you go. We're going to pray and close out. Um, we're all sick. And so imagine your cells being impacted at the mitochondria level. Your cell is a little machine mechanism. Every cell is a, is a organic piece of brilliance. Every cell is his own machine. And the best thing that can happen to that cell is that it can go through a cleansing. That some healthy mRNA technology, because your RNA, RNA technology, not mRNA technology, some healthy RNA technology that gets into the cell, informs the cell, cleanses the cell, pulls all the junk out of the cell, 
frees up your cell, degums the cell so it can operate at higher maximum potential. It's just like an engine in your car. Many of us are mechanics. We know if the oil in your car is gummy, you're going to have more friction in the engine. More friction is reduce of lifespan, reduce of performance, reduce of output. This is why we will often use the metaphor, man, my car is sluggish, right? Well, it got the jab. That's why it's sluggish. Uh, but what I'm saying, sis, is that th- there, there are many things you can do for that. This will take for all of us, however, and I'm observing this, and people are not doing it, and so I stopped talking about it, because you know this, I'm not talking about it anymore. Like, if people don't want to take care of themselves, they just don't want to take care of themselves. Um, but we really should be taking care of ourselves. Um, It doesn't cost that much. And if you are really in dire straits economically, I I promise you, come to me. I'll I'll give you $5. I really will. I'll give you, I'll help you get started. Because your body is happy when you give it good things. Um, And and some of our brothers and sisters who have taken it more seriously, you want to really jumpstart your immune system, whatever is left of it, so that it can actually operate at maximum level. It's not only what you put in it, it's what you don't put in it, and that is learning how to fast appropriately because fasting is a mode of communication with your immune system that tells it we have to restructure because we have to go into efficiency mode, and we're going to help you emit the junk that, that needs to be emitted That's what I meant by how God has made us marvelously. We can overcome a lot of things by just stopping stuff. And so, sis, you can you can uh, you can you can you can you can work towards a betterment of your health, notwithstanding. You know, that 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 past event, you you can. So and I would definitely I would definitely encourage that. All right. We're going to close in a word of prayer. Y'all join me in who, who what? Who? I have no idea what the book is. Oh, Gary got the book. Gary got the book. Did you see it, Gary? You, well, that's all you need to do. That's all you need to do. That makes you feel like you was back there with Bunyan. Make you feel like you back there with Bunyan. All y'all can touch it. It's, it's older than some Bibles we have. Um. You guys join me. You guys join me in prayer. So, Father, thank you for your mercy. We're about to leave now. And we thank you that we have uh, been able to lean into your word and listen to your voice and so to the spirit. And we're asking that you would be gracious to us and let it bear fruit upward. Let it bear fruit 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold, um, because it's your doing. Um, And we are definitely asking for your kindness to us in the year 2024 around all of the pressing issues that we are um, op- so bold to talk about here in this community. Um, help us to be wise. Help us to be prudent. Help us to be discerning. Help us to be um, successful uh, according to your will. Help us to be helpful and hopeful uh, with our brothers and sisters as well. Help us to be better stewards of everything that you have given us. And we're asking all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right.